so I'm looking out and some of you look like after the last 24 hours your blood sugar is a little low and you might be uh, struggling to stay awake and if you're like me you might be struggling to even think straight. Uh, but uh, I thought about bringing a bag of jelly beans up that if I saw people falling asleep I could use for two purposes. Keep them awake and boost their blood sugar. So, But I thought that might be a distraction so I didn't do it. So. We are resuming our study, uh, Encountering Jesus, and there's no more worthy topic than Jesus. He's why we're here. He's the one we need to know and fall in love with if we're going to experience God's best for us. So let's just pray as we start. This morning we're going to look at a parable from Luke 16 that Jesus shared uh, on the topic of mastering money. So let's just pray. Lord, we are here We are thankful to have your word in our hands. We are thankful that you reveal yourself so clearly through it. We want to see Jesus, and we want to see his good and generous and, frankly, exciting plan for us as we look at this parable and his teaching to his followers. Impact our hearts, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever made a decision where... You bought something and you realized that the happiness, the contentment, the popularity that you thought it was going to bring just wasn't there. And then you realized the opportunity cost, that that money was gone on something that didn't deliver. And now you didn't have it to spend on something that would have been far wiser, far more valuable, far more productive. But the money's gone. I had an experience like that when I was 21. I was still in college and I had uh, just finished passing all the classes and getting my real estate license. And within a few months, I'd sold several houses. And for the first time in my life, I had what seemed to me at the time like a significant amount of money in my bank account. And uh, suddenly I found myself <laughs> sitting in the seat. That's not it, but it looked just like that. 1974 cherry red Mustang hatchback. And from the moment I sat down in that car and started to drive away, I realized that I had made a very, very bad decision. The Spirit was just gently helping me understand that this impulsive And foolish decision was not in tune with God's plan for me. Not in tune with the priorities that I knew he wanted me to have in my life. And I'd made a foolish decision. And graciously, as I decided just literally two or three weeks later to sell the car, God graciously allowed to get all of my foolishly spent money back. Praise God. I was thankful for that. And it was a very good lesson that, as you can tell, still impacts me today. And, you know, some of you might have had similar experiences to that, where you've you've made a decision, you've used your money, your resources, in ways that you realize, in retrospect, just didn't make sense in regard to how God was wanting to use you in this world while you're living this short Life here and now. 
And this morning we're going to look at a parable where Jesus really starts to reveal what he wants for us. And, and you know, when we, we start talking about money, <laughs> some of you are saying, okay, here we go. <laughs> here we go. This is going to be like getting a root canal. And I want to encourage you to rethink that. I want to just encourage you, just hear Jesus out. Just hear him out. Because I think what you're going to find is that maybe you'll go away from what Jesus wants to say to us about his plan for how we use not just money, but our possessions, our time, our, all these things, that, these, these treasures that he's given us. His plan is one that is really good. It's one that is, ex- frankly, exciting. It's one that can motivate us and energize us in regard to how we live our lives and how we, how we invest our resources. So rather than feeling like, okay, God's going to turn the screws on me, quite to the contrary, keep an open mind. Hear Jesus out. And I think you might go away excited and motivated in ways you never have been before. Let's just read our passage. Starting in Luke 16, 1 to 9, at least the first nine verses. This is a parable that Jesus told his disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive or welcome you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus tells a parable story here about a wealthy man who hires a manager to oversee all of his possessions, all of his wealth, and to invest it and use it for the benefit of the master, for the plan of the master, for the future of the master. And he, um, you know, it's a lot like us if we wanted to hire a financial planner and we turn over our resources to them so that they can invest it for our good, for our plan, for our future. But at first glance, this is an interesting situation because it says the master commanded him. So if Jesus is the master and we're the one responsible to manage, is Jesus commending this guy for being dishonest? It seems a little confusing. And at first glance, it seems like, what's going on here? 
Is Jesus validating that it's okay to be dishonest as long as the end goal is good? And of course, if we look at the rest of what Jesus teaches and calls his followers to, obviously, Jesus is not validating or condoning dishonesty or selfishness in any way. So what we see here actually is that Jesus draws a really clear distinction between those he calls the sons of this world who use these kind of methods to accomplish their things and his followers who he describes as the sons of light. He's not calling us to use the methods of the sons of this world. He's calling us to be sons of light. But there is a lesson here. So what is it that Jesus is commending this manager for? And, you know, this this manager did do, clearly he was dishonest. But it does tell us what his primary motivation, the reason he, he, he did what he did. He says it very clearly. It says, so that when I am removed from management, people will receive or welcome me into their houses. His motivation was that he was preparing today with what he had responsibility for. He was preparing and using that today to prepare and think about the future. He knew when he lost his job, he was going to be homeless. He knew that he needed to prepare for his future home someplace to live. He needed friends who would welcome him into their homes. And so that's what Jesus was was trying to point out. Hey, even the people of this world, with their dishonest methods, are wise enough to understand the need to prepare for the future. He's calling us to think that same way. He's calling his followers to think about the future. I'm your master. I've entrusted these resources to you. Think about the future. Prepare for the future. Have an eternal perspective in how you use the resources that I've entrusted to you. In a nutshell, that's Jesus' point. Now, we see here that Jesus calls his followers to use earthly wealth to make friends who will welcome you when you arrive at your eternal home in heaven. Look again at verse 9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive or welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Dishonest manager just wanted people who would let him live in their house for a little while here on earth. Jesus is telling us, hey, hey, the stuff I've entrusted to you, you make friends that will be in heaven with you. You make friends who, when you get there, are going to be ready, wanting to throw a party, welcoming you, receiving you with gratitude for what you allowed God to use you to do. Manage your possessions, manage your talents, your time, your wealth, whatever God's entrusted to you to advance the gospel. That's that's the point Jesus is making. Think about eternity. Think about the people who could be impacted if you use the resources that I have entrusted to you. The implication here is that 
when we live a life where the resources God has given us are invested for him, are thinking long-term, are thinking about how people can be impacted with the gospel, that those people are going to know. Why are these people waiting, excited, throwing a party to receive this person into heaven when he gets there? Why? It's because they know. Somehow God has made them aware. And you might think that nobody knows, but God knows. And God will make sure that they know. Can you imagine what it would be like, what it's going to be like if as we're in heaven and time passes, that we are encountering brothers and sisters, children of God that are in heaven. And when we meet them, every time we meet them, we see the gratitude in their eyes and in the way they respond to us because they are a friend. I might not have ever even known them until I get to heaven, but they are a friend that is in heaven because of God's call for me to invest what he has given me. Imagine what that's going to feel like. I think we could be in heaven a long time before we get a full understanding of just how many people God has impacted with the decisions that we made, with the resources that he's given us. You know, all throughout scripture, God takes what seems like a very, very small offering to him And he just multiplies it into something that's beyond our imagination. I mean, situations obviously like the the, the little boy who who offers his lunch, you know, five small little biscuits, piece of bread, and and two small fish, and, and Jesus feeds thousands of people with it. And I think the point we need to understand is Jesus will do that with whatever we offer him to. It might seem to us very, very small, but he will multiply it and he will use it in ways that are beyond our ability to imagine. Jesus also makes the point here that this opportunity to use what he's entrusted to us, it doesn't last forever. Look at what he says. He makes the point that you've all heard that phrase. If you don't use it, you're going to lose it. And that's true about the resources. Notice what he says. He makes the point that all earthly wealth eventually fails. Verse 9, he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth, so that when it fails. Notice he doesn't say, if it fails. He says, when it fails. Worldly wealth always fails and in the end has no value. doesn't lose its value. It ends up with no value, right? Jesus talks about it. You see it there on the screen. Matthew's a play. One of the things, he starts to help us get a little understanding of that. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, right? So things wear out. Things get stolen, and we could add a lot of things to the list of why worldly wealth always fails, right? Stock and bond markets implode. Got a call from my sister the other day. She was all panicked about her, you know, her her, her 401k was just plummeting. And she didn't know what to do, and I didn't know what to do either. So, (laughs) 
you know, what do you do? And, and you, you, you find things like inflation and taxes. And, you know, the, the, the value of, of worldly wealth shrinks. But here's something that in the end actually makes it have ultimately and always no value. And that's death. You can't escape death and taxes, but you can't escape death. <laughs> right? And in the end, when you're dead, when you die, whatever you have amassed, whatever possessions you have, whatever talent you have, they don't just reduce in value. They become of absolutely no value. It fails completely. And we're going to talk about another way that, that, that money and, and possessions fail, too. We'll talk about that later. But they, in the end, have no value unless they are invested with an eternal perspective. No wonder Jesus says to his followers, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because the earthly treasures fail. They become of no value. So the question that comes out of that is, okay... So if, if Jesus is calling us to make friends in heaven and lay up treasure in heaven, then how do we do that? How do we lay up treasure in heaven? And Jesus provides some answers to that question as he goes along. And let's continue on, read a few more verses here in our passage. Starting in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Heavenly treasure. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus makes it clear that there is an inseparable connection between the faithfulness with which you use the earthly treasure, money, possessions, time, talents, those earthly treasures that he has entrusted to you. There's an inseparable connection between that And you're receiving and being entrusted with true riches, heavenly treasure that will never lose its value. Jesus tells us that when we, whoop, got to read another passage. If you're faithful and use earthly possessions, you'll be trusted with true eternal riches in heaven. I want to read the second verse on the screen there. Look at that one. It says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and Mark adds and for the gospel will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. So Jesus clearly tells us that when we willingly give up worldly wealth and possessions, 
and out of love and worship and a desire to see the gospel of Jesus brought to people who desperately need to know him, that that will result in us receiving these these true riches, these eternal treasures, this reward in heaven that he talks about so many places. It's interesting and compelling here, the exchange rate. You guys have heard me talk about this because this exchange rate is really interesting. He says if you give up possessions, you give up things of value, things that you treasure here on earth, and you do it because you want to honor the name of Jesus and you want to further the gospel, how much do you receive? A hundredfold. A hundred times. So I don't know what that is. It doesn't mean lands and stuff necessarily, but... But what it tells us is how much we'll value it. However much you value what you offered to Jesus so that you could make friends who will be with you in heaven to spread the gospel, to honor his name. However much you, get, how much you valued that, the true riches that you will receive, you will value a hundred times more. Now that's a pretty nice exchange rate. And no wonder he says... Some who are last are going to be first. Some who are first are going to be last. Why? Because those who are last in, in earthly wealth who choose to offer to Jesus and receive a hundred times more are suddenly going to be loaded down with treasure. And some who are first in this world and got all kinds of earthly treasure but chose not to understand the responsibility as a manager, back to the parable, to, to, to use what's been entrusted to them for good purposes, for God's plan of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus, they're going to have nothing. And so the, it's really clear that you're going to have this huge reversal of fortunes. Some who are last are going to be first. Some who are first are going to be last. And we need to understand, Jesus Jesus wants us to understand this. He wants us to understand the opportunity, the privilege that we have to be involved in his gracious plan to reach the world with the message of Jesus. There's, it's interesting when you think about this. When, when, you, when you grasp the things that Jesus teaches about this, this exchange rate, of investing our earthly treasures, offering them to him, allowing him to use them in the process of reaching the world with gospel. You understand, why wouldn't every Christian invest everything we have in being a part of that process, in 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 reaching the world for Christ, knowing that whatever we give up, however much sacrifice we might have, it's worth it. Why would we not do that? And Jesus answers some of those, that question in, in the things he says here following the parable. He makes it clear that no one can serve both God and money. Remember, he says no servant can serve two masters and you cannot serve both God and money. The answer to why Christians so often we struggle, I struggle with with really believing what Jesus is saying and seeing the opportunity and, and totally surrendering myself to that process is because I don't really believe the truth, both about God, but I think more importantly about money. I believe things that aren't true about money. 
I believe that money can do things that only God can do. And that's a problem. Because if you love and serve money, you'll do it because you mistakenly think that it can provide the contentment and security that only God can. It's an interesting verse. Look at the verse there in Hebrews on the screen. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. The first leads to the second. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. So this verse tells us two reasons why we tend to trust and serve money rather than God. Two misconceptions, two wrong thinking about money. And that is we think it can provide contentment and we think it can provide security so we don't have to be afraid. Let's be honest with ourselves. How many of us don't, maybe even frequently, think, you know, if I just had a a nice house with no mortgage, and I had a car that I paid cash for, and I had a big fat retirement account, then I would really be content. And I wouldn't have any reason to be afraid about the future. Anybody else guilty of thinking that way? That's what we think about money. We trust and we serve money and we pour all kinds of time and effort and passion into trying to accumulate it. Because we think if we can just get enough that it'll give us contentment. That it will give us security so that we'll have nothing to be afraid of. And so we serve that and we offer ourselves to that and we focus on accumulating all kinds of things. And it's sad because it can't do what only God can do. And you know, Solomon, the Bible tells us, was the wisest and richest man that ever lived. And I talked one night to the youth group about this experiment that Solomon did. The wisest, richest man ever. And he did an experiment where he said, I'm going to let myself have everything my heart desires. Whatever it wants, I'm going to give it. I'm going to do an experiment and see where this goes. And so he did. And when you're the richest man in the world, you can have anything you want. Right? And he did. And here's the outcome after he finished that experiment. What did he decide about money and security? Finding, finding uh, contentment and security. Well, first verse is in Ecclesiastes where he says, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never content with his income. Can't be done. There's no amount of money that can buy contentment. What about security? When Proverbs Solomon said, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Can't give you security. Can't give you contentment. It can't take away your reason to fear 
all kinds of things around you can't do that. Only God can do that. And, and Solomon came to that conclusion and encouraged others to seek God. Given all of what I've learned from this experiment, seek God. You know, if you want joy, if you want contentment, if you want peace, if you want security to not have a reason to be afraid, money's never going to deliver that, but God can. Notice in that verse back up in Hebrews, it's knowing God and believing his promises. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's where security comes. That's where the ability to not be afraid comes is recognizing God for who he is, believing his promises, and serving and trusting him, rather than serving and trusting if you're trying to accumulate enough money to get there. That doesn't work. So it's mistaken thinking that causes us to serve money. And and Jesus is saying, you can't have a foot on both sides of the fence. That's not going to work. You can't serve God, oh yeah, I trust him, and serve money. Oh, I trust it. We really have to make a decision. We have to let God reach our heart, bring us to a point of trust and faith in him where we believe he really is the answer to the contentment and the joy and the peace and the security that we know we desperately need and want. He's the answer. And money and possessions are never going to get us there. I want to take a second and try to, I want to return to this whole thing of laying up treasure in heaven. And it might be that some of you are sitting here and saying, wow, I really love the Lord. I I really want to see people brought into his family. I really want to see the gospel go forward, but I just don't have much money. I don't even know sometimes how I'm going to keep a roof over my head or food on the table. And and I don't see how I have any hope of making a significant enough contribution to what God's trying to do in the world to make any difference. What are the chances that I'm going to have the scene in the parable where when I get to heaven, there's going to be a party of people who are there ready to welcome me and receive me, expressing gratitude to God and gratitude for my willingness to let God work through me so they could be there. What are the chances that I'm ever going to experience that with the, the, the limited resources that I have? I want to encourage you by looking at a scene a little later in the book of Luke. And we might study it in more detail later, I'm not sure, but... Look what, look what this Jesus makes clear. God cares more about the heart of love and worship and sacrifice behind your giving than the amount. Jesus looked up. He saw rich putting their gifts into the temple gate and treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor woman has put in more than all the others. All these gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. We need to see God's perspective here. This poor widow who didn't even know how she was going to get her next meal, God says, put more in 
than all the others. God's not focused on the specific dollar amount. God's focused on the heart of love and worship and thanksgiving and sacrifice behind what you give to him. She gave him more. And I think the clear implication of Jesus' teaching is if if God sees her as giving more, these are two coins together didn't aren't worth a penny in our money. If she gave more, then the riches, the treasure in heaven, I can only assume that's going to be more. It's not about the dollar amount. It's about the heart. It's about the sacrifice. It's about the passion to be involved in what God is doing at reaching the world with the good news of Jesus. And if she gave more, her reward is going to be more. Does that make sense to you guys? That's exciting. That is exhilarating to know that that God's economy for these things is completely different. So, another thing I want to talk about just briefly as we close is, what is this riches? The answer is, I don't know, I'm not sure. I don't know. But I have one inkling that seems really clear to me. Part of this riches, part of this treasure that we will value immensely is about the friends. It's about the friends. Listen to what Paul said. He understood that having friends saved by the grace of God will be a source of immense joy for you in heaven. He says this, what is our hope, our crown, our boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. He was writing to people that he had sacrificed incredible comfort and everything. He went through so much sacrifice and so much suffering to bring the gospel to them. And he knew that what he was going to value most, just like God, what does God value most in all of his creation? You, (laughs) me, people. And he knew when he got to heaven, he was going to be attuned with Jesus' value system and people, people were going to be what he would value most. He would find incredible joy, incredible glory in the people that God had allowed him to be involved in bringing the gospel to. You know, you may be sacrificially giving, not the amount, but from your heart, and and it's painful because you don't know where your next meal is going to come from sometimes. And maybe you don't know a single person that has been personally impacted or brought to Christ because of your offering of your time, you know, your your abilities, your money, your possessions. Maybe you don't know a single one. I want to encourage you that you may not know. You might be giving faithfully to the ministries of Westside. You might be giving to ministries like Voice of Christ. You might have a list of missionaries that you're sending five bucks a month to. I don't know what's what you're doing. Maybe you're faithfully serving in some other way in the nursery or whatever to try to further the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus. And you don't know anybody. But you know what? God knows. 
God knows how that $5 a month that you send a voice of Christ, 60 bucks a year, he knows when that extra 30 seconds of radio time they were able to buy from that impacted someone and brought them to Christ. He knows. And the implication from this parable is they will know. They will know. He will make sure they know. And they will be friends waiting for you with thankful hearts to the Lord, but grateful too for your allowing God to use you in his work of reaching them with the gospel. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty exciting prospect. There's a lot more things I think involved in what the treasure in heaven, but that's a big one. Friends. Like Paul said, you're going to be my joy. You're going to be my glory when I get there. I'm going to finish with a quote that many of you know. And it makes a lot of sense after what we've talked about from this parable. Jim Elliott, missionary who gave his life trying to reach a tribe in the wilderness of Ecuador. And he said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. All the stuff here to gain what he cannot lose, all the treasure in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good plan. We thank you for the privilege of having and enjoying all the good gifts that you give to us. But Lord, help us to have an eternal perspective in how we use our lives, how we use our money, how we use our possessions, how we use the the abilities you've given us, the time that you've given. Help us, Lord, to invest them with a recognition that you are all about saving people, loving people, reaching people with the good news of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to surrender ourselves to be a tool in your hands in that process. Give us a passion to have this scene described in this parable come true when we arrive in heaven. That there would be people waiting to welcome us, to greet us, to receive us with gratitude into our heavenly eternal home. Make that true for each of us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.